So as I mentioned, <clears throat> Joe, he's away uh, this Sunday with us, enjoying his time with his family. And with that, we're going to take a break from the book of Revelation. So I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. So with that break, we'll resume next week with this teaching. But I chose a passage of scripture today that, be it, it's not in Revelation, has a lot of application and relevance to what we're learning in the book of Revelation. So my topic for today is on the final judgment that Christ will bring to all people. So if you want to turn your attention to the book of Genesis chapter 18, I chose this passage because it's the interaction between um, God and Abraham before he brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So hear the word of God in Genesis 18, 22 through 33. It says, So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. But be that from you, shall not, the, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am who but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 29. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of the 40, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, went in and finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now turn your attention to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46, as a source of our sermon text for today. So Matthew 25, verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41. 
Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the de devil and his angels. For I was, a, was a hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous in eternal life. This far the reading of God's holy word. So here we find Matthew 25, 31 through 46. As many of you probably heard of it, as referred to as a parable. And I don't think that's entirely accurate here. What we see in Matthew 25 is rather is a description of Jesus Christ regarding the last and final judgment. And we see it more as a description using symbolic elements in the form of a goat, sheep, and shepherd to describe what will take place at this final judgment. And I think for us to fully appreciate and understand what Jesus is teaching here, we have to understand its place in the book of Matthew. We're not going to look at it today, but I'm going to mention it. In chapter 24 and 25, we do see a series of parables that Jesus teaches his people, his followers. We see the fig tree, the master and his servant, parable of the ten virgins, all stress the importance of being ready for the return of Christ because it is near. We see right in the, the parable preceding this, this description of the final judgment, the parable of the talents, giving us, um, stressing the need for faithful service and work, which will be rewarded at the judgment. So we see here in this, this passage of scripture, the ones preceding what I just mentioned, we see Jesus teaching his followers in, this, in the forms of parables of the need for being ready because Jesus is returning. The need of being ready by being faithful to our work and our service and our worship in God. And, and then we see here that Jesus will reward those greatly who follow through with those commitments. So as we look at Matthew 25, 31 through 46, I want to ask three questions of the text that will kind of guide where we're going to go with it. The first question I want to ask is when and who will be judged at the final judgment? So when will it take place and who will be there? The second question I want to ask the, the text for today is how will people be judged? In what manner will this judgment take place? And the third question will be what is the end result of this judgment? After the judgment has taken place, what will happen to the people of the world? So if we turn our attention back to the first question, when and who will be judged, we can look at verses 31 through 33 with me. So we see here Jesus saying, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32 says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. You and I and many people of the world don't really like the idea that we don't know when Christ will return, right? But all throughout Scripture, he never indicates, Scripture never indicates when Christ will return. Just like scripture never really indicated the exact time that Christ would first come. 
when he first came to inaugurate his kingdom, when he first came to live an obedient life to the law and to take our sins and to raise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father. He never gave us a specific date. He told us in scripture that it will happen one time, but at his first coming, he never told us the exact date and time. And so be it will be with this, the final judgment. When Christ returns, we do not know when. We do know he will return, but scripture does not tell us the time and day that he will do it. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 1 through 5. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So here we see Paul telling us there's no reason for us to know. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as a labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So we see here that we do not know exactly when Christ will return, but we are not to be ignorant that Christ won't return, because he will. We do know and have the, the promise and assurance that he will return. We just do not know when. Second Peter 3, 8 through 10, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with one day, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should be reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then he, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So to answer the question, when will the final judgment take place, we do not have a specific answer other than to say that it will take place and that we should be ready for it to happen. Therefore, we see in the verses, the passages of Scripture that we're examining today, in the previous parables that I alluded to in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew, that Jesus is more concerned with people living their life in a worthy manner than knowing when his return will take place. We are reminded each Lord's Day of this reality when we take the Lord's Supper. We can easily forget this, but each Lord's Day, we are reminded that Christ died and that Christ will return. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We hear this every week. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So each Lord's Day, we, we, we worship God, we praise God for his death and resurrection, for taking our sins away. And as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we also remember that he is returning for his final judgment and his consummation of his kingdom. So if we look, so we, to go back to the question that I asked, when and, and how or who will, will the Lord judge? We, we know general about it. We know that the Lord will return, but he does give us a description of what that day will look like. If you wanted to look back at verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, so when that day comes, when the Lord returns to judge the world, he will have angels with him. There might be a number of different reasons why those angels are with him. But scripture tells us that these angels that return with him have a specific job. In Matthew 13, 41 through 42, it says this, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom 
all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. So we see that on, when the Lord returns and, and, and brings his final judgment, that the angels have this job of gathering those, the, the wicked of the world, the non-Christians, the non-believers, the goats, if you will. And in Matthew 24, 31, we see this. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from end, one end of heaven to another. So as I mentioned, there might be a number of different reasons why the angels are with him, but one of these reasons is that the angels have the responsibility of gathering the nations, gathering the people, the elect and the non-elect, for the final judgment. So this period of time, um, excuse me, this, the second thing in verse 31, so we see we do not know when Christ will return, but we know he will return. When he returns, he will have angels with him. They'll gather up the nations. And then in verse 31, the second part of it, it says, then he will, he will sit on his glorious throne. So we see back to Christ's first coming through his obedience, atoning death, resurrection, and ascension, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Remember, Joe talked about this you know, a while back in his sermon on, on the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is already, but not yet. So we live in a period of time where Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. He has started his kingdom. He is seated on the throne at the right hand of our father. But his kingdom has not been consummated. It's not been fully established because he still allows for a period of time for Satan to have his dominion here on earth. But yet at the final judgment, when Christ returns, he will be sitting on his throne. And he is sitting at the right hand of the Father with the lordship over heaven. But, uh, excuse me, this period of time ends, this period of time of this inauguration of Satan's dominion over the world. This period of time ends upon Christ's coming and judgment. We find Jesus coming in all his glory and upon a throne. His throne coming down to the people of earth expresses not only his judgment of all people, but also the consummation of his kingdom. Upon the final judgment, the kingdom of God will be a present reality in all places at all time. And for you and I as believers, as the sheep of God, this is an exciting moment. This is an exciting time. As we see the world around us just destroying itself and the wickedness everywhere and just the, the struggles, the pains, the illnesses that we experience, to see God's kingdom coming, to see him coming for the final judgment. Yes, it's a, it's a fearful thing for some, but for us as Christians, as believers, we have this great confidence and this great excitement that we will pass this judgment and experience paradise with our Lord. So we do not know when Christ will return exactly. We know he's coming. When he comes, he'll be bringing angels with him. They have the job of gathering the elect and the non-elect of the, of, the, of, of the whole world to him. We see that Jesus is on his throne reigning, bringing his kingdom not only, bringing his kingdom fully to earth and heaven. And then we see here in verse 32, another description of what this time will look like. Verse 32, it says, before him, will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33 says, and he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. So we see here that the angels gather all peoples and notice here, it's all peoples. It's not just the Jews or not the Jews or the, the unsaved and the saved. It's all people living at the time of Christ's return and those who have passed away. 
all peoples will be gathered. And here is where we see the symbolism of this passage that Jesus uses, or Jesus uses the symbolism of a shepherd. And obviously it's no, no surprise, right, that, that throughout scripture, Jesus Christ is described as the great shepherd who takes care of his flock, who tends to his sheep, who doesn't let any astray. It's a great thing. We see here in this passage, the sheep described, right? The sheep represent those who follow and trust Jesus Christ. Sheep being meek and obedient beings, right? The animals just lowly and, and follow just like you and I as Christians, lowly, meek, humble followers of Jesus Christ. And we see the goats here, goats symbolizing the belligerent, the unruly, the destructive. If you have goats, they kind of fall in that category, right? They destroy everything. It's symbolized here and represent those who do not follow Christ. So back to that question, when will Christ return and and, and, uh, how will it be? We do not know the exact time, nor do we need to know. But we, we, we stand ready. We know Christ will return. We make sure that we are, are faithful to what God has called us to, to good works, to worshiping him, to trusting with faith and obedience in all that we do. We see here that when Christ returns, he'll come with the angels. The angels have a job of gathering all nations. We see that Christ will be on his throne and every person will recognize that Christ is on his throne. And of course, as it's mentioned here, that all peoples are present at this final judgment of Jesus Christ. So we look now at the second question, probably one of the most significant questions, I think, of this passage. How will people be judged? Because it's very important for us to know how will the people of the world be judged? Verse 35 and 40, and then 42 and 45 give us a glimpse at that. At this point, I'm omitting the, the, the passage of where God actually administers his judgment, but rather we're going to look at the description of what is God judging. In verse 35, it says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you get, came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in a prison and visit you? And the king will answer him. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So that his judgment to the sheep, to the righteous. Now the judgment given to, or, or the criteria of the judgment given to the goats, the unrighteous. Verse 42, it says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So we see here the criteria of the judgment or, or, or the rubric used is the same for both the sheep and the goat, the unrighteous, the righteous, the saved, the unsaved. The rubric is the same for both. So the judgment Christ described is based on how people treat others, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. There are four main views 
So as I was studying this, I came across four main views on how to interpret this passage, as they all depend on how you interpret the word the least of these brothers or the least of these brothers of mine. Isn't that what is significant? It is saying Jesus is going to judge on how we treat these people. Now it is significant for us to understand who are these people we're supposed to be treating in this manner. And and I like what I came across is James Boyce in his commentary, the gospel of Matthew articulates these four views very well. So I allow him to explain. So view number one, it says the words might refer to anyone who is hungry or has other physical needs. So anyone is what the one, this one view says, this has been the majority view in church history and has led to many sentimental and sometimes fanciful stories. Gregory, the great tales of a monk named Matyrus who came upon a deformed man lying exhausted By the roadside, he carried him to the monastery, and when the abbot saw him coming, he called to the other monks, saying, Open the gates, our brother Martyrus is coming, he is carrying the Lord. Another story concerning Francis of Assisi, Francis was a wealthy, careless man before his conversion. One day he was out riding and saw a loathsome leper. Something moved Francis to dismount and fling his arms around the leper. When he did, the face of the leper changed to the face of Jesus Christ. Another story, such these stories, stories such as these are characteristic of medieval uh, piety, but the same view is expressed by persons such as William Barclay, who concluded from these verses, God will judge us according accordance with our reaction to human needs. Or a teacher who wrote, the son of man sees in any wretch his brother. In other words, this first view views that, that we are to give this aid, render this, this treatment to all mankind. And that is what Jesus will judge us on. The second view, the least of these brothers of mine might mean the Jews. This is a dispensational view, which understands the judgment to be one of several judgments. This one placed at the close of the great tribulation after Christians have been removed from the world by the rapture. It is usually described as a judgment of literal nations on the grounds of their treatment of the Jews. Harry Ironside wrote, My brethren are those of Israel who are related to Christ, both according to the flesh and the spirit, and will be his authoritative witness in the coming time of tribulation, when the present church age is ended. This view is possible only if the entire dispensational understanding of prophecy is valid. And obviously, if you've been at Emmaus at any point in time, you understand we will not hold to this view of this passage, right? So the third view, it says the least of these brothers of mine could refer to the apostles and other Christian missionaries. This would mean that the reaction to them and their gospel determines the nation's fate. This is closer to the text than the other ideas, and it has support from Matthew 10, 40 through 42, where Jesus says to the disciples, he who receives you receives me and who re- he who receives the one who sent me. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to the one uh, to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth. He will certainly not lose his reward. Some of these views are better than others, obviously. But the trouble with all of them is that Jesus does not use the words brothers. And this is significant. Jesus does not use the word brothers in those ways in this gospel. So it's looking at the word brothers of how Jesus used it throughout the gospel. In Matthew, brothers means disciples. All who, f- who follow Christ are all Christians. You could look, we're not going to look at it, but you could look at Matthew 12, 48 through 50. Matthew 23, 8. Matthew 28, 10. Those who are least also refers to Christ's followers. 
Matthew 5, 19, Matthew 5, 11, 11, Matthew 18, 3 through 6, Matthew 18, 10 through 14. So for us to accurately interpret what this passage means, we need to look at the word. And the way that Jesus reuses the word brothers or those who are least definitely refer to Christians, to fellow followers of Christ. This is the use of the terms that means that the next interpretation is the right one. So the fourth and the correct interpretation is this. The least of these brothers of mine refer to Christ's disciples or all Christians. So you might be thinking about this. This does not mean that the Bible is unconcerned about the poor and the oppressed. We read throughout other scriptures that as Christians, we should be concerned with, with the poor and the oppressed of all types of people, not just the Christian. We read about them often. So we read about our, our requirement or our expectation to, to treat others, all mankind, well. But that is not the thought here. What Jesus means here is that the fate of individuals depends on how they relate to Christ's followers, which means how they also relate to him. So the way we relate to one another in this room as fellow Christians, we also relate to Christ. John Brodus puts it like this. Our Lord is not expressly speaking of benevolence to the poor and suffering in general, but of kindness to his poor and suffering brethren for his sake. D.A. Carson says similarly, true disciples will pass an examination, the final judgment, not because they are trying to pass an examination, but because they will love his brothers and sisters and therefore Jesus. Goats will fill... Because, of course, they will not particularly care for Jesus' brothers and sisters. Thus, they will be rejecting the Messiah himself. Just as Saul, right, before his conversion to Paul, right, in persecuting Christians was actually persecuting Jesus. So we see that this view, this fourth view of what it means, the brothers, of how we're supposed to treat, means that they are Christians, our actions towards other Christians demonstrate in our evidence of our love for Christ. Now, this is actually peppered throughout Scripture. Because if you think about it, we all in here can profess, profess Christ. But if our actions towards one another don't meet up with our profession, then our profession is false. It's fake. It's phony. Our actions and our profession need to match up. We see this throughout scripture. In John 13, 34 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. So it's talking about fellow Christians. By this, our love for one another in this room, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 1 John three sixteen through 18 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, or let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we say we love one another, if we say we love Christ, we will have love and take care of one another in this room. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Serve brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 12.10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have, may have the same care for one another. Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is filled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And lastly, 1 Peter 4, 9 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we see here as Jesus is tapping into what has been taught through all of Scripture, or rather all of Scripture is tapping into what Jesus previously taught that if we are going to pass as judgment, it's based on how we treat one another. And the only way we can treat one another in a worthy manner is if we have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if God has regenerated us, God has given us the free gift of salvation. Once God has changed our heart within, then we can freely and appropriately and accurately love one another. So some might be thinking that Jesus in these passages are alluding to or trying to articulate that our salvation is gained through works. And in this commentary, Boyce states that the works Christians perform do not save them, but the works are evidence that Christians love and trust Jesus. In other words, this judgment reflects on the highest level what we attempt on a much lower level when we admit people into membership in a particular church. So think about this. The way we do membership is on a very low level of what Christ is doing at the final judgment. When we do so, we look for what we call a credible profession, meaning a verbal profession of faith. So, of course, we have to profess faith. We have to say we believe. We have to depend upon Jesus Christ for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. But meaning a verbal profession of faith in Christ supported by a consistent way of life. Any inconsistent life invalidates the profession however sincerely it may be expressed. So through our actions, through our actions to one another, validate and express our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I think some of you might be thinking of a very familiar passage that expresses this. James in 119 through 27 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the world. So at the final judgment, we are found not guilty because our salvation is through faith, a gift from God. But we understand that this gift of faith is demonstrated and identified through our actions towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Before we move on to the last question, I think it's important to note here something about these works. And if you caught, 
with, with, the, with the sheep. When Jesus said, you did this, you did that, you did this, they were surprised, right? And if you look back at verse 37, 39, it says, the righteous could not even recall them. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And did, when, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And it's, so it's been said, the evidence of a credible Christian profession is not how many great works that has been performed for Jesus, how many churches have been built or sermons preached or millions of dollars given to Christ's cause. The proof of conversion are not great things at all. They are little things, as most people think of them. Sharing food with a brother who is hungry, giving water to a sister who is thirsty, welcoming a stranger, offering clothes to one who needs not, or clothing, caring for the sick, visiting a person who is in prison. On the same token, the wicked are not condemned for some great sin or evil, deed, but rather a simple neglect of doing good. There are seemingly good people who are like the virgins who can't understand why the groom won't open the door the parable in Matthew chapter 24, or that's the previous parable, or the servant who doesn't understand why the master is not happy with zero grace performance. The desire to do good that leads to the acts that Jesus mentioned, above, mentioned come from receiving the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is regeneration. So the only way we can pass judgment, pass the judgment, the only way we can treat one another in this room with the love that is pleasing to God is by first being regenerated. And that only comes from Jesus Christ as a gift through faith. Once Jesus regenerates us, makes us new in heart and soul, then we can act out easy and seamlessly these good works that Christ is judging us on. So we turn to the third question, the last question. What will be the result of the final judgment? So we see here there are two types of people, right? There's two groups of people, the sheep and the goats. But the result, the end result is different for each group. For the sheep, in verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I thought that was kind of interesting. So just as Jesus chose his sheep before the foundation of the world, he also has been preparing a place for those sheep to be spending for eternity. We can't even imagine what heaven will be like. And I think as you get older and you realize there's not much in this life and things just fall apart and there's so much wicked and evilness out here, you can't but long for eternity with Jesus Christ and what he has prepared for us. We can't even imagine what that place will be like. It will be so glorious. But unfortunately for the goats, in verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's a few observations I want to make about this last, pa or last um, verse in verse 41. We see here that hell is a total separation. Hell is a total separation, separation not only from those who will be with Christ, but it is total separation from God. And it's a total separation from God when knowing that God is the true and holy and the righteous God, the only God. And then it's the separation. In this life, we're really good at separating things, right? We have liberals and conservatives, the privileged and the disadvantaged, those who rule and those who are ruled over, right? We have the wise and the foolish. We see that in this passage that the only division that really matters in all of life and in all eternity 
is the eternal life division of where we will spend eternity with, with the Lord or in hell with the demons. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, No, not one goat will be left among the sheep, nor one sheep with the goats. There will be no company, no middle company in that day. Complete division, complete separation, no going back. We see here too, not only is hell a total separation, but that hell has a bad association. And what I mean by this is that you catch that hell in verse 31, who was hell prepared for? It was prepared for the devil and his angels. According to to Boyce, it says, some believe that hell is where the demons torment sinners. But Jesus pictures hell as a place where fallen angels and rebellious humans, human beings are together in their suffering. What a terrible association. What a destiny to spend eternity shoulder to shoulder with evil beings whose one goal has been to defy God and bring others to share in suffering forever. It's no news to you, but that hell is also suffering. You see how Jesus referred to it? He refers to hell as eternal fire. And I think we, we, we need to take this eternal fire as more of symbolic because demons, right? Uh, um, Satan and, and his angels, the demons, are spiritual beings, who can't be consumed by fire or necessarily burnt. But Jesus is using the purpose of imagery of fire and burning to point out that suffering, that this suffering in hell is inexpressibly worse. Scripture refers to it, however much pain it will be, of nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is nothing but complete suffering, miserable. A place we don't want to be in a place we should weep over and, 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 and mourn the fact that people will spend eternity there. It has been stated that the idea of eternal hell, eternal suffering has been so disturbing to some people that there have been countless attempts to try to deny it or limit its duration. People have claimed that eternal suffering is inconsistent with the goodness of God, who certainly will never allow any of his creatures to remain in hell forever. But God is a better judge of what is consistent with his goodness than we are. And it is he who says that hell is eternal. We can't call the shots. We can't make it up. This is what Jesus has called it. This is what Jesus has deemed. This is what God has called to be. Others have argued that eternal hell is inconsistent with the justice of God. For no sin committed in time could ever deserve such punishment. But what makes sin an infinite evil is that it's against an infinite God. Besides, we must remember that hell's punishments vary in severity according to the nature of sin. We looked at that catechism last week. That some sin, is all sin is evil, but some is more evil than others. The bottom line is that in verse 46, uses the exact same word to describe the duration of sinner's punishment in hell as he does to describe the duration of the believer's life in heaven. It is the word eternal. So it's a reality. We need to be aware of it. It is part of God's final judgment. John Ryle wrote this, Who shall describe the misery of eternal punishment? It is something utterly indescribable and inconceivable. The eternal pain of body, the eternal sting of an accusing conscience, the eternal society of none but the wicked, the devil and his angels, the eternal remembrance of opportunity neglected and Christ despised, the eternal prospect of a weary, hopeless future. All this is misery indeed. 
It is enough to make our ears tingle and our blood run cold. It is no joking matter. It should make us weep. It should make us uh, just troubled by the fact that there are people of their own choosing, denying Christ, will spend eternity in hell. So we looked at our three questions. Looked at the first question of when will Christ return and, and who will partake in it. And we know that we don't know the exact time, but we know that Christ will return and we're to be ready for it, working diligently to serve the Lord in good works and to worshiping God on a regular basis and to doing good to one another. We know that when he returns, the angels will be with him. They'll be gathering up all peoples. And on that judgment, God will be on his throne. He will be consummating his kingdom and bringing final judgment. We see here that the Lord will judge us based on how we treat one another. And it's not based off our works. Because as Christians regenerated through the grace of God, we naturally, as a result of our profession and our faith, we serve and love one another in this room. But we must always remember to do so. And we see here that the, the end result of the final judgment will be the separation. be two groups. We have the goats to eternal damnation, and we have the sheep to eternal life with our Lord Jesus Christ. So I guess we could ask one last question, what I didn't put in there necessarily, is but why does Jesus teach us about the final judgment and the eternalness of his, and the eternal, eternalness of his judgment? Why does Jesus bother giving us this information? Is he trying to frighten us? No, because what, what, good, what good would it do? People are not frightened into heaven. I think we sometimes misunderstand that, or people try to do that. Let's scare people with what hell is all about, and then they will be frightened into heaven. We know from all of Scripture that that's not the case. It's a regeneration. It's the Lord working on our hearts that gets us to heaven. So why does Jesus tell us this? I think we must take this passage of Scripture that is Jesus returning, and that his judgment is real, and the decision is final for eternity. We must examine our hearts. I think this is the application. We must regularly examine our hearts and examine our actions to see if they align with that of his sheep. We all proclaim Christ in here on a regular basis, weekly, as we come before the Lord and his table. Examine our hearts. Examine our profession. Examine our actions to make sure they're aligned with the characteristic of God's sheep here. In closing, I want to read 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, because I think he explains it well here. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and, with, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, you will be richly provided for your inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus teaches us about the final and eternal judgments to remind and encourage us to develop our Christian character, to confirming our election, ensuring that we'll be counted as one of his sheep at the final judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we do... 
give you praise for your final judgment. Lord, we understand that it's, it's what a righteous God must do. Lord, we thank you that you call us your sheep. Lord, we thank you that you, not on our own work, Lord, nothing that we can do, but your free gift, Lord, your grace and mercy, only because of your grace and mercy and what Jesus Christ did for us on that cross, living an obedient life and dying for our sins, only because of those things, Lord, can we pass that final judgment. Lord, we thank you for this free gift. We thank you, Lord, that you care for us as sheep. Lord, we thank you that you help develop, uh, develop these good works in us. Lord, I pray for the people of Emmaus, myself, Lord, that you would continue to work us, to make us more and more like you. So on that day, Lord, our election can be confirmed and we'll be able to spend eternity with you. Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.